This episode is brought to you by Avalanche and Paraswap. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Enjoy. All right, everyone. I am here with my prestigious partner in crime, Mr. Uh, Michael Ippolito. It's a big day for Mr. Michael Ippolito because uh, Ooh, he just hit prestigious. Uh, prestigious. He just hit five thousand <laughs> followers on Twitter. So, uh, I mean, it's cute, but it's a it's a big day for him. So, <laughs> hey, man, I'm coming for you. All right, I'm coming for you. I'm marking this down. It's December first. Uh, best watch yourself, brother. You best watch yourself. I, right? I like the uh, little meme war that we have going on. What what people behind the scenes don't realize is that our head of social is just you know fighting two wars here and, and battling on both sides. So, but. <laughs> You know, I think I, yeah. I, I think he's supporting me a little more than you. So I know I feel like t- I got to find a way to get him more on my side. I literally slacked him. I was like, Miguel, dude, I need your help with this. Uh, <laughs> you need to come up with a fire meme. And you know, it's funny. I actually I retweeted uh, my my, um, my meme on top of yours and more people ended up going to your meme of me <laughs> and retweeting that. So I literally just shot myself in the foot with that whole thing. I was you, like, you know how to get on Miguel's uh, good side is uh, you just retweet and, and uh, uh, comment on Blockworks tweets. Because he's so focused on growing the Blockworks Twitter. <laughs> that, that's how you get on his good side. It's the inside alpha that all the listeners really care about. All right, let's get to, let's get to let's the predictions. Get into it. All right, cool. Let's get to the predictions. Cool. So six months ago, we made uh, seven different predictions about what was going to happen for the rest of the year. Uh, we nailed some. We missed some. Uh, Mike is going to give seven predictions for 2022. At the very end of the show, we'll look back at our old predictions and see how we did. But Mike's got some pretty bold claims uh, and ideas for what's happening uh, in the next 12 months. So you're definitely not going to want to miss these. Number one, let's just get into it. Unless you have anything else to add there, Mike. No, no, no. I can kick it off. I actually, I think I'll kick it off actually with the prediction that I feel the most confidence in, which is a uh, flippening of the followers of Mippo and Yeno. Um, so I think if you look at the fundamentals of the prediction, it. Uh, in general, <laughs> uh, Mike, I, I've, I've just got a bigger, I've got a bigger arsenal of dad jokes at my disposal. I think I'm fundamentally let's, let's better looking. Let's not remind looking. the listeners uh, how we both started at 200 <laughs> followers and raced to 2000 and then somehow, all right, let's get into it. Number one. Details, bro. Details. Prediction all number right, one. Yeah. <laughs> Bitcoin will surprise everyone and go on a big tear, possibly driven by institutions in Q1. Tell us what you're thinking here. Yeah. So I think in general, uh. I mean, Bitcoin does have this history of just running away and surprising the market. And there is this, there's this great uh, quote that I really do like from Crypto Cobain, which is um, the coin that everyone hates is the most underowned in general. And I think, you know, if you look at the performance of Bitcoin over the last year or so, it's been kind of trading somewhat range bound, right? Uh, or it hasn't really done a whole lot. And there's, there's this whole new generation of uh, crypto investors, kind of the class of 2021, uh, that's never really seen what a real Bitcoin run looks like. And I think you actually started to see this back in September or whenever Bitcoin went from you know 20 to 60K real quick. Uh, it did look like we were going to have that rotation back from alts into Bitcoin. In general, I just don't think that the market is really pricing in the potential of that happening. And uh, I think it's going to take everyone by surprise when it eventually does happen. And uh, if I had to guess at what the catalyst for that run would be, I would say it's institutions uh, piling into Bitcoin or finding a way to underwrite leverage to that space. So, you know, one takeaway that I had from our DAS London conference in um, back in, I guess, this last month uh, was you we had a lot of banks uh, at that conference, like the JP Morgans and BNYs, et cetera, of the world. Um, and unofficially, they were kind of like, look, Q1 is the time. And I actually didn't know this. I guess this is public record, but BNY is going to start to custody crypto in Q1, 
apparently that's a target. So, you know, if yeah, I with, had with to Fireblocks. guess. Yeah, that's why they made that big investment in Fireblocks. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah, if, if I had to guess, I would say there's going to be a big BTC run uh, in Q1. That's also when, you know, institutions get their mandates, right? But then there's a, there's a certain delay in between when they get the mandate and when they can deploy the capital. So I think that's my first prediction is a big uh, Bitcoin run in Q1. All right, let, this me, year. let me push back a tiny bit, which is um, you, you had uh, Avi Fellman. Uh, from Block Tower on your show the other day. And Avi talked about kind of the end of cycles. And specifically, he said, you know, you will continue to see cycles uh, and these big bull bull runs and blow off tops in kind of some of the alts, but you won't see it anymore in Bitcoin. And a lot of his mm. thesis ties back to the fact that institutions are now in the Bitcoin market. Uh, and oftentimes what they do is, you know, if Bitcoin goes up 100%, they're selling off Bitcoin. If Bitcoin falls... Mm. 20% they're buying Bitcoin, right? So they're kind of, they're more trying to do like a value trade on Bitcoin. Whereas with the alts, it's entirely retail driven still. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, I think there's definitely validity to that. I'm not 100% sold on that viewpoint in general. Um, I do think just historically, the most effective marketing tactic for different crypto assets, be it Bitcoin or ETH or different alts, is just higher prices. And I think there's a lot of people that trade momentum, institutions included. Like, uh, you know, there was that big UK-based asset manager, Ruffer or Roofer or whatever. Roofer. You know, they bought and everyone, you know, everyone in crypto goes, oh, yeah, see, they're going to buy it. And they're they're not like retail. They're not paper handed. They're diamond hands. They're not short term players, blah, blah, blah. They bought it and sold it like two months later. Yep. <laughs> you know? um, so I'm... I, I think there's a, a decent possibility, actually, in, in Avi's point, which is that we do start to see something that looks less like these super predetermined four-year cycles around Bitcoin that get anchored around the halving. Maybe it's just a longer, steadier, slower grind upwards for something like Bitcoin. But I think even if that is the case, Bitcoin's still like an 80-100 vol asset or something like that. So even if the pattern does become less volatility over periods of time and less of these super well-defined bull bear four-year cycle type things, I still do think you see big runs in Bitcoins than relative slowdowns. And I think we haven't seen a run in Bitcoin for a long period of time. A lot of sentiment has got uh, kind of sucked out of the market. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm not really a markets guy, but uh, I do think at some point institutions will start to come in in more size. And I do think that will be the start of the next kind of big bull run in market cycle in general. Awesome. All right, let's move on to... Um... A non-Bitcoin topic, DAOs. Mm. Um, uh, you, you said DAOs will buy something worth $1 billion. Uh, am I reading this mm. number right? Possibly a sports team, you said? Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't really know sports. So it's, that probably seems pretty cheap for a sports team unless it's a, it's a pretty shit team. But all right, let me, let me just provide the context for this prediction. So, you know, Constitution DAO is pretty interesting. I view, you know, a lot of people might look at that and say that's a flash in the pan or a sign of froth or something, but I would actually categorize it more as a shot across the bow uh, and a sign of future things to come. In general, I'm kind of adopting my my framework for looking at bubbles or frothy things as like a sign of something that works, even if it's not the the ultimate end state of that thing. And I think just the amount of media attention and funds, frankly, that Constitution Dow raised uh, was indicative of, of things to come in the future. So... I, I don't view this as a flash in the pan. I view it as the very beginning of a trend of DAOs uh, raising more money, basically, and buying more significant things. And a little bit of history on this, because I think it is pretty cool how this actually happened. So there's a guy, um, Anish, I'm going to butcher his last name, um, Agnihotri. 
Uh, so he actually created this protocol as like a side hustle called Party Bid, and that's what allowed uh, these DAOs to basically pool together ETH and bid on NFTs. So you see things like that in in Pleaser DAO, uh, etc. And it's just crazy how quickly I mean this fun little like open source side project thing evolved into what's now pooling together pretty large sums of capital. Right, Constitution DAO raised like forty million dollars or something like that, and they're bidding on. The freaking Constitution of the United States, like it's it's pretty cool. It's a story that a lot of people can get behind, I think. And uh, you know, we're recording this on December first. I actually saw Sahil Bloom just did a tweet that we should, uh, you know, a DAO should pull together funds and buy a board seat on Twitter. Now, I'm not sure if that's exactly how corporate governance works. Right? It would probably need to be there. Might need to be some more subtleties involved than that. But that's pretty cool, you know. So the billion dollars is kind of an arbitrary number, but I could also see it kind of happening because look at what crypto companies are doing with sports team. We've decided that sports teams are the Trojan horse for crypto marketing. Crypto.com just spent a billion dollars on a marketing campaign, right? They bought the, you know, the uh, I guess it was the Staples Center. Now it's the Crypto.com Center, right? They're sponsoring F1, UFC. I could see a DAO being like, hey, guys, a DAO should be spending more on marketing than one crypto company. And maybe sports teams are the way to do it. I don't know. But that's my that's my prediction for you. Yeah. Unlike your first prediction, this is one I completely agree with. I think that, I mean, in crypto, things end up going going up way, way longer than you think they'll go up. And they also are much, much bigger than anyone realizes. And this is the very first, like the very first big Dow campaign was, you know, 40, 40 plus million, right? 45, 47, mm-hmm. whatever it ended up being. And so it just seems silly to me to think that this is a a one-time thing, especially having seen so much in crypto, uh, things get a hundred times bigger than anyone thinks they can be possible. Uh, and I also think that there's this ethos of crypto that some of the old school crypto folks are worried about losing perhaps, uh, which is, you know, giving power back to the people. And I think yeah. a lot of the, the venture money flowing into crypto, you get a little bit worried that the ethos gets taken out of crypto. And I mean, mm-hmm. what says power to the people more than a DAO raising a billion bucks and uh, and and outbidding some billionaire to buy the sports team, right? Yeah. I'll tell you this too. Ken Griffin outbidding Constitution DAO was the best thing that could have ever happened to DAOs because- oh, yeah, It rallied the troops, baby. It gave you a goal. It rallied, it rallied the, rallied troops, the baby. troops, Yeah. It's no different than that saying that every startup needs a villain or excuse me, an, an enemy, Right. And mm-hmm. right now, Ken Griffin is enemy number one for the uh, the Dow startup <laughs> startup team. So, all right, um, number three prediction number three: Solana, Avax, or Luna will come within twenty percent of ETH's market cap. Yeah, give, give us so, give us a little background on this. Like, where are they at right now? How far? Away, how crazy of a prediction is this? Yeah. I don't I mean I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. Actually, I guess I could look it up here on CoinGecko, but I mean just to provide some context here in case you weren't around in 2017-2018, I mean crazy things happen during bull markets. Uh XRP flipped ETH for a pretty long period of time. That was the number 2 crypto in terms of market cap, and ETH itself actually came within I'm pretty sure just a couple percents uh, a couple percentage points of actually flipping Bitcoin. All right? So if you look at it right now, I've just got CoinGecko up here. Uh, so ETH's market cap right now is 560 billion, flirting with all-time highs. Uh, Solana is about 70 billion. Polkadot is 40 billion. I'm just going down, looking at the major L ones. Avalanche is uh, 28 billion. Luna's 23. So overall, 
I think if you look at things not in terms of valuations, because nobody's really doing that, nobody really knows how to value these networks anyway, then the framework that you kind of arrive at is a relative framework where you're saying, okay, ETH is the market leader, but there are viable competitors here, maybe in the form of Solana and Avalanche. And then it's like, okay, well, maybe I think Solana should be worth 30% of ETH or maybe 50% of ETH. And then take whatever you think is somewhat reasonable and then multiply it by two because emotions and froth always get the better of people. Uh, and and this, just, this has just happened many times before. So I would say it's probably an indicator that things are overcooked, right? Like if Solana's market cap starts flirting with or, or getting within the range of ETH, I, I without taking any stance on, on how, like I, I believe in a multi-chain world, I think we will have multiple layer ones. I do not think that any layer one should be valued close to what ETH is right now. It just doesn't have the history and the decentralization and the developers, just the fundamentals of, of all the other layer ones are still a ways behind. So I think if you do see one of the other L1 competitors, maybe it's Solana, maybe it's Avalanche, those seem like the two most viable ones at this point. If they do get within that 20% range of market cap, that that would to me be a pretty that'd be yeah. a pretty significant top signal. I think there's a decent chance it happens. Yeah, but, I, do, uh, I do too. And 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 one thing to point out is like this is not just unique to crypto, right? This is not just a crypto bull market thing. Uh, mm -hmm. You can make the comparison to Tesla. Like markets are crazy and people are crazy, right? Tesla is worth as much as the combined market cap of the nine largest car makers around the world, more than Volkswagen, Toyota, Daimler, Chrysler, etc. Combined, but Tesla mm -hmm. makes up less than 1% of global car sales, right? And so it's, but why are you betting on Tesla? It's because of the future upside. And so right. I, I honestly think that's a, a decent comparison to uh, things like ETH uh, comparing to Solana, AVAX, and Luna right now. Because, you know, when you talk to a lot of the kind of bigger funds, I completely disagree with them on this, but a lot of them feel like they missed the Bitcoin and ETH trade but they think there's still alpha left in some of these smaller ones. So, yeah. Do you remember we had that conversation a while ago about people skipping Bitcoin and just hopping into things? I know, I and, thought you were crazy. Yeah, and I, uh, well, the reason I, you know, I'll put my hand up and say, I, I went back and looked at my Coinbase, what I got in 2017. And the first two things that I bought, don't judge me, were uh, <laughs> Ripple and uh, Litecoin. Because I was like, all right, I missed the Bitcoin thing. What's next? It's just, I think it's a really human urge. And, you know, there's just saying like, uh, you know, more money has been lost chasing the next Amazon than almost anything else, right? And the, the answer was just yeah. to invest in, in Amazon. You know, I got, I got my first text this week from a friend. The first, this is how I know what stage of the cycle we're entering is what texts high school friends are sending me. And I got the first one saying, should I buy Litecoin? I said, no. He said, but it's a cheaper, it looks like a cheaper Bitcoin, right? So, <laughs> mm -hmm. A little worrisome. There you go. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's we're okay. not. I'm not being flooded with those yet, so yeah, I'm not super worried okay. about that. But uh, and I do think actually a good framework for those listening. The longer we trade sideways right now, the longer you can expect this bull run to keep going. Yep. Basically, I, I think the longer we just don't have some sort of parabolic blow off top, the longer it looks like we're going to push this out into 2022. Right. And again, maybe there's not some violent bear market correction. But I just don't think you can go up the amount that crypto has gone up without some sort of, uh, you know, sustained fall across the asset class over a period of time. Right. Empire is proud to be supported by Avalanche. 
there is a layer one war heating up in crypto and Avalanche is at the center of it. Avalanche is one of the fastest smart contract platforms in the industry. I've been looking into the ecosystem recently and I'm honestly amazed by how fast it's growing. Here are three reasons why I'm so intrigued by Avalanche. Number one, Curve and Aave, two of the biggest DeFi protocols are in testing right now for Avalanche integrations. Number two, new projects. These are not just NFT clones, AMM knockoffs, and lending protocols. These are new projects, NFT projects, play to earn games, really, really interesting stuff happening in the Avalanche ecosystem. And number three, Binance just re-enabled C-Chain integration. What in the world does this mean? This means that you, the user, can directly withdraw to your MetaMask, which previously was a pretty big user bottleneck. Thank you, Avalanche for sponsoring Empire. We are going to continue to explore Avalanche in future episodes. Hope you enjoy it. I would recommend that you do the same. Empire is proud to be supported by Paraswap. Paraswap is one of the leading DEX aggregators in crypto. Let's say you're booking a flight. You would never go directly to an airline, right? You'd never go directly to United or Delta. You'd obviously go to Google Flights or Expedia or Kayak or Booking.com. That's what Paraswap does for DeFi. Paraswap, if you're watching on YouTube right now, you can see the platform. Paraswap makes swapping easier, it makes it faster, it makes it cheaper by aggregating more than 80 different DEXs. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, Uniswap, Sushi, Balancer, uh, Bancor into one single interface. You can use Paraswap on ETH, Polygon, as you can see here, BSC, they recently launched Avalanche a few weeks ago, pretty exciting. If you are a trader listening to this, you are losing money by not using Paraswap. And excitingly enough, if you're a company or a platform looking to access the swapping or the yield capabilities of DEXs, you can now use Paraswap's APIs to integrate into your platform to get the full power of the DEX aggregator into your platform. So head on over to paraswap.io. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see how simple it is to use. Just plug in, let's say I wanna swap you know, 0.2 ETH, for USDT, you can see how simple it is. Just plug that in right there and it aggregates over 80 different DEXs. So head on over to Paraswap, P-A-R-A-S-W-A-P dot I-O to use the platform today. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, next prediction. Uh, <laughs> I have a feeling I know where this one came out of, which is uh, maybe a late night at a Solana party. Uh, decentralized options will explode most likely on Solana. All right, All right let, let me give you, I mean... Delphi, here. Delphi sure knows how to host a good party because if they got you hooked on this one. <laughs> go, go ahead. What's the prediction? But it makes sense, right? It does make sense. So if you look at, like, let's look at some high-level frameworks for this. So the, the market for derivatives in equities is orders of magnitude larger, actually, than, uh, than spot. I tried to actually look up and get good facts around this. It was really difficult to do. Uh, very opaque uh, markets, and people don't really know how large that market really is. But I got some good uh, benchmarks here from actually the Sam Bankman-Fried podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. So you know, he got he had this great line. Uh, first of all, you know, there's about two hundred billion dollars a day in volume that gets traded around crypto globally, which by the way is very close to stocks, which is crazy. But uh, so two hundred billion dollars of volume, about one hundred thirty-five of that is derivatives, fifty-five of that is spot. So there's a ratio of about two to one. Right. Uh, if you look at DEXs, and this is where the information isn't quite as good. So DEXs, decentralized exchanges, uh, you get about $100 billion of volume that gets traded per month. Um, 
they're just there's not great i mean there aren't really decentralized options right so you can kind of look at dydx and their volume as something that looks like a proxy and then maybe increase it by a little bit uh so you know dydx just in their last couple months have done about uh two billion dollars per day let's say there are other options let's say it's about like five billion per day that ratio is way way off right that leaves a ton of upside uh there could be at least you know a 40x upside in terms of pure volume there to just get to the ratio of derivatives to spot that you see on centralized exchanges and that's not you know and that ratio is still probably even much lower than it should be you know if we're looking at uh tradfi equities as a as a proxy so in general i think it's a pretty safe bet that decentralized options and structured products ends up growing and the reason i think it's going to be on solana maybe i did get um red pilled at breakpoint what do we call it for some yellow pilled <laughs> solana pilled at breakpoint but i mean one thing that was not super obvious to me uh, before Solana was the preference that sophisticated traders have for a central limit order book, which Serum allows, versus the AMM model that got pioneered on Ethereum, which is what Uniswap and Sushi use. It's just more cost efficient. You have more options for, again, sophisticated traders that want to write logic into their trading patterns. So I think it is a pretty significant advantage that Serum does allow that. So if I had to take a bet, I would probably say that Solana slash Serum wins that use case. And I think over this next year, you're going to see an explosion in terms of volumes. Yeah. I mean, I think even in the next two months, you're going to see an explosion of funding announcements come out of the Solana ecosystem. It was crazy being at the conference, right? You look at, you go to like, uh, you know, the multi-coin event, there's a bunch of 22-year-olds building on top of Solana and there's a line of VCs at the door trying to get in front of them. Yeah. So literally wild. Cool. Um, all right, next thing, um, bridges. Uh, you've been talking about bridges for a while, actually. Bridges will emerge as a leading theme in Q1 or Q2. Mm -hmm. tell, us what you, tell, tell us more about this. So if you think about, I think the most powerful narrative, let's say over the last three to six months, has been this, whatever you want to call it, multi-chain world, layer one wars, viable competitors to Ethereum on the smart contract platform. I think the consensus view that's emerging is that we will end up in a multi-chain world, so to speak. And if you take that premise, even if you don't agree with that, let's say you don't even agree with that, but the narrative still is that that's going to happen, right? So let's assume for a second that either that is true or that the market thinks it's going to be true. Okay. In a multi-chain world, what are some of the first things that you need? What is basic infrastructure that you need? You need a way to move assets between different layer ones, right? Because... Let's let's take a look at Bitcoin. Bitcoin, I do believe, has kind of already won the war. I mean, no one's even trying to compete with them, really. They are store value. They're digital gold. It's pristine collateral. It's whatever you want to call it in the new, you know, crypto economy. So the the one thing that you can't really get uh, from Bitcoin by keeping it on chain is utility. You can't really easily extract yield. I mean, you could use external services like BlockFi, but let's say you didn't want to do that. You want to keep it on chain. You want to earn yield you need to find a way to migrate your Bitcoin onto other chains to earn that yield. For that, you need something that looks like, I mean, you could wrap it, uh, but basically, you know, in a, in a more, un, for a more scalable solution there, you need a bridge. You need a way to move assets in between different chains. So I think the need, the need for a bridge is one that a lot of folks have kind of realized. Um, it feels decently obvious. It's like one of the first things that you'd need if you accept the premise of a multi-chain world. So, You've got a couple of interesting competitors. Uh, wormhole is something I've heard a lot about. I've never really used it. Um, 
Synapse uh, is something. It's, it looks like the only bridge with a token. Um, full disclosure, I own some of that bad boy. So <laughs> take that with a grain of salt. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think bridges are going to be huge. And one thing, another thing, like to your point before about narratives sticking along for longer than you think, NFTs have stuck around longer than I thought they would in terms of the spotlight and narrative. And this multi-chain world L1 Wars thing has gone on for much longer than I thought it did, uh, than I thought it was going to, which always should make you take a second look. So if this is an enduring narrative moving forward into the new year, I would expect bridges to be a pretty big part of that. Do bridges decrease the need for wrapped Bitcoin and other wrapped assets? I mean, I think you have to do it in terms of wrapped. Like wrapping is the structure that I think you need to do, right? Even with bridges, you would still need to be, you know, wrapped Luna or wrapped ETH or something like that. I don't know what the structure of that is. To be honest, I don't really know how, I don't really understand Bitcoin's involvement in wrapped ETH in general. Uh, Some huge amount or wrapped Bitcoin rather, sorry. I think it's some huge amount that they actually have, by the way, of circulates like 1.5% of Bitcoin supply is now wrapped and on ETH through BitGo. <laughs> That's a pretty wild statistic, actually. Uh, but yeah, I think I think it still would need to be wrapped, right? That is the structure that I would need to do. Um, but I would imagine that that becomes something of a technicality. And I could imagine when, you know, five, 10 years from now, when the UI UX isn't <laughs> the way that it is now, you might not even, it might not even get flagged to you that it's wrapped, right? That might be, you know, it would just be like Luna on ETH or something like that. Right. right. Uh, and you could look that up if you needed to, yeah. that it was wrapped. All right. Bridges. All the smart people are talking about them. Bridges. Get them while they're hot. Next up, talking about things that are hot. The financialization of NFTs will mark the top of the current bull market. I feel like you're... Yes. Uh, you're gonna die on this hill. This is your. I'm gonna you're, die you're on this hill. This one. <laughs> this is my little conspiracy. All right, let, let me just have a little bit of fun with this. All right, not that this is fun for anyone really, but if you want to look back at the 2017 rally, uh, or the 2017 bubble, and what caused the uh, you know the pop, uh, you, you could just say no tree grows to the sky forever. There's a lot of froth and excitement that was just bound to happen. But if you actually wanted to look for a technical reason, then you would you would have to look at this dynamic of force selling in treasuries of ICOs. So basically, I think what ends up driving what I think the dynamic that drove the 2017 and 2021 crypto bubble is some combination of like leverage and actually money illusion because money illusion money in in the crypto economy is Bitcoin and more recently ETH. So what the dynamic that ends up happening is Bitcoin and now ETH go up. People feel wealthy in terms of their, they denominate their wealth in like Bitcoin, right? So what happened in 2017 was Bitcoin and ETH go up, everyone feels really wealthy, and they chuck their money into ICOs, right? I would never invest $100,000 in an ICO, but maybe I'll invest, uh, you know, 50 ETH or whatever it was at the time, right? Like that's that's very different, right? It's this concept of casino chips. You've basically made money more, uh, one, la- one more layer of abstraction. So Bitcoin and ETH go up. You chuck it into ICOs, and then what happened in the ICO on the top of the ICO bubble was that ooh, we actually have real world costs. So this hundred million dollars that we raised in Bitcoin and ETH, well, actually we got to sell some of that, maybe half of that, to pay for these real world expenses that we're incurring. That created this forced selling dynamic. Kind of peaked with EOS. They raised four billion dollars. I think they did a good job of treasury management. Basically, sold all of it and uh, and kicked it, and then it kind of 
you know, triggered this this wave of, of forced selling. And that was the end of and that was the end of that. Now, if you look at what's going on in 2021, I think you could make a very good argument that the real story of 2020, the 2021 bull run has been NFTs. And it's the same thing. Uh, it's, you know, Bitcoin and ETH go up. ETH's probably more uh, relevant here. So Ethereum goes up. Everyone feels really wealthy. They chuck their money into NFTs. You hear all these anecdotal stories. Oh, I never spend $10,000 on an NFT, but like two ETH. You're like, yeah, sure. Why not? Right. So everyone feels really wealthy. They chuck their ETH into these NFTs. Um, and NFTs are, they've gone up like a billion percent, right? But they're super, super illiquid. Now, one of the things that emerged for me from the Solana conference, everyone is very interested in financializing they're NFTs, right? They're very interested in how they can get more utility, capital efficiency from these assets. One of the big things was using NFTs as collateral. So basically what you could do, read using NFTs as collateral as taking out leverage on your NFTs. So basically you put up your NFT as collateral, get a loan back, you can buy more NFTs. It's basically just a new source of leverage to lever yourself up. On a, It creates the illusion of liquidity on super, super illiquid assets. So if that ended up happening, I think it would be the exact same thing as as happened with the ICOs and the forced selling. People would essentially take out leverage on their NFTs. They'd have the illusion of liquidity. You know, it would rip higher, and then eventually the the whole thing comes undone and unwinds. But that is my that's my little doom porn prediction for you. There, one thing that's uh, kind of troubling about uh, I mean, this is definitely going to end up happening, right? Loans off of NFTs. A lot of people are working on this. Uh, one thing that's concerning though is like you, it's a very, NFTs are a very illiquid market, right? So like unlike ETH, mm. so like if you can you can take out loans on your ETH or Bitcoin because you know exactly what the price of ETH is today. It's a very liquid market. Uh, NFTs, there are projects, like a lot of folks might buy in at 0.5 ETH. They're trying to sell it for 5 ETH, 10X, what it's worth on OpenSea, but it's not really trading. So what's the value of that NFT right there? So one, like, how, how do you solve that problem if you're, you know, if, if you're getting loans out against your NFTs, right? What, what's the value yeah. that you're taking a loan out against? I have no idea. Like, how much collateral do you really have? Is it 0.5 ETH or is it the 5 ETH or is it somewhere in the middle, right? Is it the most recent yeah. sale of the project? I think people are kind of breezing over how difficult that is because, you know, well, the reason why lending in DeFi works is because these are, by definition, right? These are fungible assets. These are money, right? Uh, or or something that looks like stocks or equities or whatever. But, you know, one Aave equals one Aave, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. NFTs are non-uniform even within collections of NFTs. There are punks that are more rare than other punks. There are bored apes that have certain characteristics that make them more or less valuable than other bored apes. I don't really understand how you just apply some sort of lending formula to this without having experts. I mean, I guess it would be a good analogy. Well, that, well to say that's how, what it how is. Can people... it's, it's experts. In the traditional art world, you literally, if you yeah. own a Monet, you have an expert, you have multiple experts come in and they will tell you how much it's worth based on all this data and things like that. And then you can get a loan out against your art piece, right? Like this happens in the yeah. traditional art world. Um, but I guess in this case, you'd have to have a bunch of experts going on Aave and verifying how much they think the NFT is worth. But I can tell you who's doing that. It's people who actually own the NFT and are in that community. So obviously they have an inflated expectation of how much the NFT is worth. Dangerous game. I guess. Yeah. Look, I, I, I do want to say as well, when I, I'm super bullish 
on NFTs. Very, very bullish. On maybe even more so on gaming NFTs really than PFPs or art art-based NFTs in general. I think they're great. I do think right now that you have to look at this market and say this looks overcooked and maybe not the best version of what it could be. Like ICOs were directionally correct. The idea that you could bootstrap growth of a network by selling interest or ownership of that network. That was a phenomenal idea. The first iteration of how that actually got executed was really poor. And I don't, you know, folks that look at the NFT market say, hey, we can just mint, you know, infinite collections and sell these things and people want to buy them. I just, I just don't buy that this is the final form of the market. I think you do need more, you know, probably of all these collections, maybe there are, I think punks and bored apes are probably going to continue to be valuable throughout multiple market cycles. But a lot of these collections probably won't be. And I think you need some more sophistication in terms of how you underwrite, how you underwrite risk around these collections. Yeah. Yeah. Seventh prediction. Last one. This is the, mm. you know, I don't want to end on the bad, on the bad one, right? I don't want to end on what's going to end the bull run. So we'll, uh, we'll do a real, real hypey, hypey prediction here, which is uh, a crypto mm. company will acquire a large, and by large, you said 10 billion or more market cap financial services firm. Are you talking about yeah. like crypto company acquiring a bank here? Yeah, I am actually. So there was a, uh, I think there's a decent chance that this happens. There was a really great thread when Coinbase initially filed their S1 to go public by guy John Street Capital on Twitter that really made me think. And the last tweet in this thread, he kind of buried this pretty interesting idea, which was, <laughs> so he's talking about uh, Coinbase here. This will be viewed as a way for investors to get exposure, not just to BTC, but the crypto asset class more broadly. They should use this currency to be acquisitive, they being Coinbase, for instance, buy CBOE for less than 10% of equity, and it would be 100% plus accretive to EBITDA and provide them a range of licenses. That was a light bulb for me. So basically what he's saying here is that Coinbase, at the valuation that they had at that time, I'm not sure they could still do this, they could buy a storied exchange like CBOE, which has the blessing of every regulator in the US. You know, there's blue chip as blue chip comes, and they would only dilute their equity by 10%. Seems like the biggest no-brainer on the planet. And I think if you zoom out for a second, if you look at TradFi as being the incumbents, crypto as being the upstart disruptors, I think the reason why Wall Street felt for a long time like they could just look at crypto and say, we don't need to get involved is because in the back of their minds, they always thought they could buy their way in. They thought we could buy this innovation if we ever decide that this becomes legitimate or looks threatening enough. And I think they had that window. I think they had that window in 2018, 2019. I now think that they have missed that window. You got companies, FTX, I don't care how much, FTX isn't going to sell to a company like Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan. I don't care what the price tag ends up being. And by the way, I'm not even sure that they could, that Goldman or JP Morgan could afford that. You know, what? what is, what is Goldman's, market cap. It's like 75 billion or something like that, right? I think FTX is 25 billion and it looks like it's still growing. So, and and the other thing that might not be apparent to folks who are outside of this ecosystem is that founders in crypto do not want to sell themselves to companies outside of crypto. Everyone views crypto right now. If you are in this space and you're a believer, you look at things through the lens of opportunity cost. So it's not just how much money am I going to get from this deal? It's what is going being outside of crypto, taking myself away from the bleeding edge for two years, going to cost me in terms of my career growth, my trajectory, my connections, my network in this space. And people assign a super high value to that. So I just don't think anymore 
that incumbents have the ability to buy their way into these crypto companies. And instead, I think it's going to flip on its head and it's going to be more likely that crypto companies actually buy up incumbents for their licenses and it becomes the other way around. So that's my prediction. Completely agree. Completely agree. Look Mm -hmm. at the acquisitions today, right? Crypto.com, 216 million bucks on, uh, Mm. you know, two different, I think it was Chicago licensed uh, some things. I, I didn't, read too much into the story but um spending 216 million thank bucks. you for that thank you for that insight yeah spending 216 million <laughs> bucks to uh to basically buy a license right yeah so yeah it's pr- it's pretty wild i think if i had to place my bets too i think they would do something that looks like a qualified custodian uh because that's been a huge issue there are lots of crypto companies that say hey we are qualified custodians etc i'm not going to walk you through the checklist of what it takes to be a qualified custodian. It's a very specific, that's very specific wording and language. And the reason why that's important is because lots of asset managers, right? So if you take RIAs um, in general, again, a drum I've been banging for a really long time, $4 trillion worth of assets in the US alone are controlled by RIAs. They need to, uh, to custody their assets with a qualified custodian. So I think the, the gangster move to borrow Scott Galloway's phrase, which I just realized I'm doing, uh, would be for one of these exchanges to buy some old qualified custodian, right? They're not going to be able to buy BNY Mellon or Northern Trust or something like that. But there's probably an old qualified custodian floating around there. Maybe they're custodying like $100 or $200 billion worth of assets, not really doing that much. They probably have a shit valuation. They could probably scoop them up for the cheap and then they could court the RIA market in general. I th- feel like that would mm. be that would be the gangster move. Mm. Uh, I like that. I like that. Cool. All right, guys, you heard it here first. Seven predictions for 2022. Keep us honest. We did these, uh, I think it was mid-June, about six months ago, a little over six months ago. Go back, listen to the episode, see how we did. I think we, we made seven predictions back then. I think we're about four out of seven. So keep in mind, these are just predictions. These are not absolutely going to come true keep us honest go back listen to the episode uh send us a tweet uh at jason yanowitz or at michael ippo on twitter let us know what you thought of these predictions and yeah we'll see you next time for uh, the next episode of empire all right hope you enjoyed